Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Hi, AJ. Yo, yo, yo. I'm coming at you live from the coronavirus of sphere. Why? Were you infected, AJ? I think that I have some sort of coronavirus or mm. rhinovirus or one of the, the viruses that causes your lungs to be... <laughs> well, you look fine, so feel well. Oh, yeah, I look event. great. I, I look great today. <laughs> Last week. You always look great, AJ. So I'm Dan Shapiro coming to you from Tel Aviv. I'll be your host today. And today we have a really special guest, one that I've been wanting to get on our show for a long time. And finally, all the stars aligned. And, fi- and so she's here. This is Neta Bondi from Israel. Hi, Neta. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Before we get into the topic of our conversation today, can you give us a brief introduction about yourself, who you are, what you do, why you're famous or infamous or whatever, and go ahead. Yeah, I'm a I'm a senior developer, senior front end developer at Twang, which is a uh, small startup that aims to allow people to to enable people to do more with uh, voice. So enable people to do more with voice platforms like Alexa. We basically want to make voice apps as uh, prevalent and accessible and everywhere as web apps. So I'm a senior front-end developer. I'm also a JavaScript enthusiast. (laughs) Can you call it that? I'm not... My path to programming has not been uh, standard. I didn't do sort of uh, a lot of the things that people usually do to get into programming, uh, whatever, computer science degree, or in, in Israel, there are some other things that people usually do to get into programming. And I sort of stumbled upon JavaScript by mistake, and I loved how democratic and egalitarian it was, and I love it to this day. I'm also a a speaker. I speak at JavaScript conferences a lot, and that's it, I think. Yeah, I would like to mention that you're indeed very active in the Israeli tech scene and and fairly well-known here, and also really active about um, representation of underrepresented minorities in, in the tech scene in general, which is also a great thing that you do. And so I'm really glad to have you here on our show. And recently, talking about... Dan, you should just do all my intros. <laughs> For sure. I'd, I'd be glad, Every time I'd I need to do, I'll ask you to write it. 
I'd, I'd be happy to. Uh, in any event, I understand that the topic that we're going to be speaking about today is this is a topic that you also fairly recently discussed at a conference here in Israel in a talk that I was privileged to attend at the React Next con- uh, conference, which is about uh, software development as a craft, whether it is a, qu- a craft or whether it's an art or whether it's engineering or some sort of combination of all of the above or something else entirely. Is that what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, I think so. Like you said, there's a lot of interesting questions there. Is it a craft? Is it engineering? What does it mean to be a craft? How do you hone your craft if it is a craft? What does it mean to be a crafts person? So yeah, this is a topic, I think, I feel like this is a topic that is, uh, it's not discussed as often as I would like, because I think craftsmanship and mastery are very important for anyone doing, you know, any type of job long term. It's, it's, I feel like it's almost a human need to want to be a master of your craft. Um, and I, I don't think we look at engineering uh, in that way often enough. And I don't think we know uh, well enough what does that mean and how we can aspire to it and how we can work towards it. And so these are a lot of questions that I've been asking myself and other people. And I figured I'd come on here and I'd ask you. <laughs> maybe, you'll have, maybe you'll have the answers for me. I'm really glad that AJ is here because AJ has fairly firm opinions on this topic. Like I said before we started recording, after I watched your, you give your talk, I actually came up to you while you were still on stage, and I told you to check out uh, the Zen of Python and the Go Proverbs and stuff like that. And the reason that I even know about these things is, is in fact, thanks to AJ, who has mentioned them here on our show several times in the past. So, AJ, I'll give you first go. What do you think? Is software development a craft? It can be. It depends on the person because to one person, I mean, it's, it's anything, right? You know, you, you pick up some paintbrushes, is finger painting a craft versus is uh, oil painting or water painting? It, you know, as a kid, you, you do water paints. That's because they wash out of your clothes and stuff. So that's what your parents get you. Water painting can be a craft, but it can also just be a silly distraction for children. And I think that the programming, there are people that all they want to do is just be code monkeys. If they can go in, copy and paste from Stack Overflow, get paid and leave, then they're happy to do that. There are other people that want to discover the a more streamlined process and uh, to, to optimize around certain trade-offs. And I think that when you are strongly considering why you do what you do and and eliminating practices in order you know, some some set of practices in order to have more consistent reproducible outcomes that is where you're in the realm of of engineering and i would argue that the the engineering of programming is the craftsmanship because you could also you know look at our you know story of mel right and you could say well mel was a craftsman and to an extent, that's true, but he wasn't being an engineer as much as an artist in the story that we were told. What's the story? I'm sorry. I feel like I'm missing something. Okay. So a while back, we had uh, Tomer Lichtash on our show. I think you know him uh, as well. He used to work with me at, uh, at Wix. And he built an entire website and did a lot of research around a story about the history of programming. We had an episode about it, so we can put the link in the show notes. 
But to briefly sum it up, it's a story about software developer, programmer, perhaps engineer, who worked back in the 50s on one of the early computers that existed back then. And uh, he was like the early form or prototype of a hacker. And he wrote a certain software for that system, uh, an actual blackjack game, which kind of stretched the capabilities of that platform. But uh, beyond that, he actually kind of took the platform to the limit and did some things that he didn't necessarily or technically needed to do, but did them just because he could, because he, it, may, it enabled him to create software as art, as it were which again will go, goes to the definition of, of craftsman, craftsmanship and what that means. And then he was uh, asked to actually change that uh, software so that it would lose, so that people playing against the system would be happy because it was used as, as a way to drive sales. And he kind of refused to do it. And then somebody else was tasked to do it. And there's a whole story around it. And I would... Re- and, recommend to you and our listeners just to check out that episode. But the point that AJ is bringing up, I think, is that Mel was an engineer in the sense that he was able to build that software and get it to run on a system uh, that was hardly capable of doing that. But then he took it a couple of steps beyond and actually created optimizations that were not required or not necessarily required Again, just because he could and just because it produced what he considered to be more beautiful software, Mm. which actually made it almost impossible for anybody else to actually understand what the software was doing on the inside. And it's interesting because I have a bit of a story of Mel of my own way back when in the day, like more like more than a decade ago. And, and I'm showing my age. Before Wix, before then, I was actually coding uh, in C++. And that was back when generics were making their way into C++, where you can do all sorts of things with templates in C++. And, and uh, STL, the standard uh, template library, was introduced into C++. And I was tasked with writing a certain bit of software for the company that I was working at. And I knew that I was on my way out, that I was going to be leaving. And I wanted, I, I, you know, I, I don't recall if I've yet told people that I'll be leaving, but it was my plan. And I was like tasked with doing this final thing before I left. And I decided to use that project as a means to learn and understand generics and STL. So I wrote that software in the most advanced and sophisticated C++ possible. I pity the person who would need (laughs) to support that software after I left. But to be blunt, I didn't care that much at that point in time. And uh, like I said, I really wanted to learn uh, C++ templating and generic. And, uh, And the software did work. Uh, you know, all the tests passed. It did everything that it should. It's just that the code inside was incredibly complicated and probably a lot more complicated than it needed to be. So the, the interesting question is whether or not building that software, I was being a craftsman or a craft person or an artist or an engineer or just a dick. And so, yeah, that's my own personal story of Mel. 
uh, as it were. And yeah, but you know what? I think it's worthwhile to actually look at the uh, dictionary definition of the term craft. And looking at, you know, Google is my friend. Uh, I looked it up and it says that craft is one, an activity involving skill in making things by hand. And they give an example, the craft of bookbinding. I don't think that exactly matches software development, although, you know, it's interesting because we do type with our fingers. And the second part of the definition is a skill used in deceiving others. And that that's interesting. And the example they give is her cousin was not her equal in guile or in, or in evasive craft. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think we're looking more at the first part of that definition of an activity involving skill. Let's leave the making things by hand to the side for a bit. So is software development an activity involving skill? I definitely think that it should be. Unfortunately, it isn't always. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think when I talk about craft, I talk about, because here's the thing that to me is difficult. First of all, I want to say in regards to definitions, right? I'm going to mispronounce this name and I'm sorry, but I've only ever read it and I I, I don't think I'm saying it right. But uh, there's a guy called Donald, I think it's Nuth, it's K-N-U-T-H who wrote The Art of Computer Programming. You're both nodding, so I'm going to say it's okay. Donald Knuth. Okay. I don't think the K is totally silent. Yeah. I think it's Donald Knuth. I'll go with that. I I couldn't figure out how to... And he talks... It's it's like the H after a W. (laughs) Okay. That explains it perfectly. (laughs) What versus what? Yes. Yeah. So it's so that's anyway, silent, yeah. right? You're like we, you're like talking to two non-native English speakers, and we're like, wait, is which which one of those is correct? Like, which one of those is right? Well, no, it's it's so there's a what was it hot rod? Anyway, there there's this there's this movie where they they make fun of people who say what the English way is because why are you saying that that oh. way? Well, Why am I saying <laughs> there's also that Stewie, way? there's also Stewie on Family Guy, cool whip. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I think that's more the British. Any, anyway, that's sorry, weeds. <laughs> so he's Do- yeah, he's Donald Knuth in the UK, and then Donald Knuth in America. That's my takeaway. Yeah, so he's, he's Knuth over here, but Knuth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm so I'm so glad we got that. I'm so glad we got that just right. <laughs> so. He talks when he so he wrote the art of computer programming, like he wrote the book called The Art of Computer Programming. And he actually talks like I found the speech of his of his that he talks about why he called it an art. Right. Why, why do you call it an art when we when it's a science? Right. It's computer science or it's computer engineering. And these are sciences. And he says he says two things that I that I really that really resonate with me and, and to me sort of enrich on that definition of craft. So the one thing he says is that science is knowledge we can teach a computer. And if it's if it's knowledge we can't teach a, a computer, if it's like a if there's like a certain kind of like magic that, that was that was what I thought, but I was like, I'm not gonna say it because it's just <laughs> because it's just so I don't even know. Yes. No, that's that's what it is. But, it's, it's a certain. But it is. But it is what he says. He says, like, if if this is something that we cannot formulate to teach a computer, we call it art. And then he says, we go on and we say science is superior to art because it can be quantified, because it can be taught, because it can be organized in a very logical way. 
But then he says, I, I think computer programming is an art because I view art, the applicable, the, the way that we use science, the way that we use knowledge in a way that is practical and applicable to actually make things. Um, and he gives the he gives the example of chemistry versus cooking. He says, chemistry is a science. We know for a fact what will happen when we, whatever, br- bring together two different kinds of elements. Elements, is that the word? But, yeah, yeah, yeah the, 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 the Hebrew speakers well, think it's so, elements. <laughs> or chemicals. The, no, it's not, it's not about the, the elements or the chemicals. It's that, that chemistry is really interesting because there is no, there is only science in the pure sense. Science in the sense of knowledge. With chemistry, there is no prediction. You can never know what a combination of any two chem- chemicals will yield because the results are always essentially random. We've, we've come up with certain categories. So, for example, we know that if you add oxygen to something, it will oxidize, depending on what it is. So we know that there's certain catalysts, but we don't know what the result is, right? So you couldn't have predicted that when you add oxygen to copper, it's going to turn green, or that when you turn oxygen to iron, it's going to turn red. We knew that something was going to happen because oxygen does stuff to stuff, but we didn't know what was going to happen, and there's no way to predict it. Uh, likewise with metallurgy. Uh, so if you do soldering, there's no way. Uh, you, it's only through experimentation. Uh, electronics, uh, the, the gallium, what is the, uh, what's gallium? Is, I want to say gallium nitride. Is that what it is? The gallium nitride chargers that just came out? There was no way of predicting that we could have created that charger. Just somebody happened to mix gallium and nitrogen together in the right combination. And then boom, we got something that was more efficient than silicon, traditional silicon for for doing power supplies. But so chemistry is really interesting because there's no predictive nature of it or the predictive nature is just so incredibly small people spend their entire careers mixing different combinations of petroleums and caustic chemicals to try to find something that will be powerful and not give people cancer and brain damage you know i think the interesting point in the context of software development is that you know again and i'm going to your definition or knuth's definition is that there are certain obvious basic uh, uh, tenets of of computers sciences engineering it's interesting you know whether or not everybody in the field is actually knowledgeable uh, and aware of them but that's kind of a separate discussion but they exist but even when you are aware of them and even when you apply them a lot of time like in a set, sort of a similar way to the way that AJ described chemistry you're doing a lot of investigation and research. One of the things that that is kind of unique from my perspective to software engineering compared to essentially any other field of engineering is that all of us are kind of building new things that never existed before. It's kind of a stretch because at the end of the day, you might say that the majority of websites and web applications are more or less doing the same thing. But still, at the end of the day, when you're, you get the requirements from a particular uh, customer, there's a certain uniqueness there. And the, the, the solution that you'll come up with is likely some, somewhat different than the solution that anybody else in the world would come up with. Uh, so, so there's a certain aspect of, of, of innovation and unique, uniqueness 
to effectively any software engineering project out there. And, and that's kind of why I love it. And that's kind of what differentiates it potentially from other forms of, of engineering, I think, where maybe this innovation exists, but not to such an, uh, an extent. I mean, I think a lot of the times, so when I was building uh, this this talk to React Next that we talked about, I actually looked at a lot of inspiration from architecture because I actually do think that the, the similarities there are are pretty interesting. And again, there's this kind of like very um, subtle slash even not non-existent line between what when is architecture engineering and when is it craft art um um something that is and and it could and it could also be both and or either one of these things right like we all know that you can build a house and you you can make it very functional and you can make it whatever I, i i'm imagining the houses in tel aviv which which dad you probably know and aj you you might not know but they sort of all look the same and they're like these little boxes and they're fine and people live in them it's one of the most expensive cities to live in in the world like people pay a lot of money for that but it but it is just engineering versus if you look at something that has a bit more of just inspiration to it and i actually do think that there that there is similarities to when you look at code because code can do what it needs to do in a lot of different ways which is which is kind of what you said then right um but but it can code that is inspiring that is beautiful that is clever that is simple that is something that have you ever had that experience of looking at code well, cl- clever and simple clever and simple are diametrically opposed it, well it, yes and no and i'll give a concrete example that recently happened to me so as part of my my job of trying to get stuff to work faster i get to review a lot of code uh, i basically like half of what i do is going into software projects where i don't i'm not familiar with the software try to figure out how it works, what it does, and see if I can somehow get it to work faster. And I recently actually did an, a change for a code, not with the intention of making it faster, but making it better or nicer, simply because what I saw really annoyed me. So what I found, so there, there was this bit of React code which mapped information received from a CMS, uh, from a headless CMS, into uh, a visual representation constructed from components. So what they had there was effectively a huge, not effectively, literally, a huge switch statement, which there was like the fi- a, a component type field which was read from the CMS, like here is the component type, here is that data for the component. So there was this huge switch statement of ma- mapping those component identifiers to the actual component function calls, which were wrapped as JSX. And what I saw is that all the components were effectively, almost all of the components, were instantiated in exactly the same way. So what I effectively did is I replaced this huge switch statement with lookup table. I basically used, you know, the fact that, or, or a dictionary actually would be a better term. I basically created a dictionary that maps the identifiers to the component functions 
and you know com- a, a component in React is just a function reference. So, and once I had this map in place, I could basically just instantiate. I would use the key to look to do the lookup in the dic- in the dictionary, get the the component function back, and and then just instantiate them all the same exact same way. And what more? I was actually able to the pre- the previous implementation had this huge import statement at that right at the beginning where they, it explicitly needed to import all of the components. I basically looked at the namespace itself as the dictionary, so I imported the namespace. So now I don't even have the component names anymore inside of of that code that does the instantiation. So the code that, became that sounds a little scary. Why? Well, when you need to grep for it, where are you going to find it? Grep for what? The implementation or for the, the u- name? Well, the implementations exist. Keep going on. Keep going on. But the bottom line is that I reduced the code size dramatically. I eliminated a whole ton of code uh, du- uh, duplication. And I also eliminated coupling because now the code that instantiates the components doesn't even know need to know which components it's instantiating because they all instantiate exactly the same. Now, the code works exactly the same as before. I don't think it runs faster. I don't think it runs slower. It more or less runs the same. It's probably the download is probably a little bit smaller, but not to make a difference. I think it's more maintainable, but I'm guessing that some might argue about that. But I definitely think it's nicer. But nicer is subjective. So, yeah. So did I do a good thing? I mean, the feedback that I got from the people was really positive. They were really happy (laughs) with the change I made. They're the ones that are going to need to support this going forward. By the way, another one of my privileges is that after I make these changes, I leave. I optimize the code and then I walk away. But, you know, the, the, the people that, su- that need to support the code actually approve the PR. They were really happy with it. Some of them asked me to explain what I did and how I did it and, you know, why this actually works, which I was glad to do. But again, the question goes back to the fact of was this a good thing or not? Was the previous code bad? I mean, it worked. So, yeah. To me, that seems like the reasonable thing to do. I mean, I'm I'm very much bought into what mm-hmm. what Kinsey Dodds put a name to aha programming, avoid hasty abstractions, which is kind of the you know write everything twice and dry the, the middle ground between the two. So you know, if you're doing a switch statement and you got two or three things, great. Have a switch statement. If you have a hundred things and they're all the same, then I think that what you did probably makes more sense. The only the only potential criticism I have is that, I mean, this is how JavaScript works, right? This is event handling. That's You created an event. Hand. It gets an event. When it gets an event, it passes the arguments. The result of the event is a component. That's, that's I mean, that's exactly. what did. That's the way JavaScript is built. But the, the only downside I see to that is just the downside that all event systems have, which is that it is more difficult to determine where something was called because it's defined in one place, it's registered somewhere, and the place where it's registered is often not where the call site is because you often have the the registering or listening object being passed around in the code. And so when you go to to see, you know, okay, where where was the call site where this thing happened? If you're lucky and you get a good stack trace, 
then you can say, oh, it happened exactly here. It was this instance of it. But if you're looking through error logs and you get something that's just the message and you see the event name, but you can't tell where it came from, then then it's it's well, what I can say about that is that it's React. So if uh, you're going to be looking at cold stacks, you're kind of screwed either way. But there is another potential downside to what I implemented, and I kind of mentioned it before, is that you need to be cognizant or, or knowledgeable about the way that JavaScript operates. The fact, that, or and even React, the fact that the component is just a function, and that a function reference is something that you can store in a dictionary. Those are not necessarily things that every JavaScript developer is actually aware of. That's a problem. That is a huge, huge problem. If people that this is, I think, true craftsmanship is understanding the basic principles. And being able to reduce things down to core fundamental principles. And I think that one of the the biggest problems that we have in in the world, just it doesn't matter which industry it is, because it's not just software, it's all over the place. People lack fundamental understandings of what the basic building blocks are and do. The number of people you'll encounter that have been programming for years that can't do recursion is scary. This is something that's, it's just so fundamental. Knowing what a function is, knowing what an object is, knowing what an array is, knowing the, you know, the other four or five different types of values, depending on how you count, you know, big num is a new thing, but you just, just Having the discipline to focus on the, the atomic parts, I, I think, is a key to craftsmanship because then you can do things like what you said, where because you know really, really basic stuff, you can simplify things without having to add complexity. I really agree. I really agree with that idea that that knowing the building blocks is is key. I don't know. I, I always have kind of we, we live in a world Certainly, certainly the world I live in, in front end, it seems like it, it's always about the newest abstraction, right? It's always about how can I level up? Can I put something on top of what is the basic technology that I'm using to make it? I think people believe they're different. making it better. <laughs> they're making it different. Um, I, I think I honestly think that it's all like intentions are always good. It's always about making it better. It's always about seeing a problem with something and saying, I think I think it would work better if we did it this way. But the problem is we're so used to reaching for an abstraction now. And sometimes it's fine. You know, I um I have I say this a lot about and this is I think this is an unpopular opinion. I've gotten mixed responses to it, but I say this a lot about uh UI libraries, UI component libraries. It's something that is so easy to reach for. You get, you know, you, you pull one of the big ones in and you get everything out of the box. And then you spend the rest of your time working on that application, hammering at it, trying to make it work the way you want it to work. Because it was never meant, because that was never exactly what you meant to build to begin with. But we're so used to, to, to reaching for the abstractions and we're so scared of having to position a tooltip, right? Of having to do things that should be sort of like the, the bread and butter of, of, of our work. Why would you have a tooltip? What kind of monster are you? <laughs> I'm sorry. Position, <laughs> position a completely regular div on your screen. Just a div. 
just position the div on the screen. Position a div. What kind of monster are I'm you? I'm so sorry. With CSS Grid, you know, like just it's just it's funny because we also get better and better abstractions within our sort of native tools, right? Like you, you know, CSS is amazing for that. It's just I remember what it was like when I first started, you know, and I and you'd have to put this this would have to be relative and this would have to be absolute and then you'd have to put and they and everything would move everything else around on the screen and you'd put stuff in tables just to make it sort of like look like a grid and. We've got all that today built in and we still bring in bootstrap or like tailwind and say call SM whatever too. I don't I don't know what the abstraction is. Ta- tailwind is the most mind-boggling thing to me. Because I look at it. It's retro. It's like the number of keystrokes are the same. You you could have written this, you're typing the same words as the CSS. You've got the same number of keystrokes. That's another topic. It's about time. naming yeah. things. It's it's basically living. It's, it's in, got the same names. No, it's basically living in a world where instead of using CSS attribute uh, uh, properties and values, you just have class names for everything. But you know, again, we're going down a rabbit hole. I, I totally agree, Neta, with with everything that you said, and and I. But there's another aspect here, I think. And that's the fact that a lot of the systems that we're currently working with on the front end, at least seem to be, on, on or on the surface at least, they are extremely forgiving, which means that mm-hmm. you can build a really bad system and it still seems to work. Uh, okay, but can, I'm sorry, but can I just oh, say, this is not a problem with the system. This is a problem with the people using the system. The web is amazing for being so accessible that you could open up a a tab on your browser and start coding. I think that's amazing. I think that is that, that we, we want to keep that, you know, we want to keep that quality. I don't want to put more obstacles in the places of people that just want to start building web pages, but it is our, and again, that that's a question because I, I can also value people who can, build things really fast or like solve things really quickly. And they use tools, they use libraries to do that. But I, I do think that if you, you're interested in being, you know, a craftsperson and you're interested in honing your craft, it is your responsibility to sort of go beyond that. Yeah. So, but so I don't think the to, problem is that it's easy. I think it's good. That I, I'm it's not easy. saying, I'm not saying that it's easy uh, uh, to clarify what I'm trying to say. So the web was built very much on what in the concept that is known as the robustness principle, which to quote means be conservative in what you send, be liberal in what you accept. That's why you can send fairly broken HTML to the browser and the browser, instead of displaying some sort of an error message, basically tries to display it based on what it thinks that you intended to do, which is usually what it, you really intended to do. That's why you can not close your divs and it'll still work and, and stuff like that. HTML is very lenient, uh, CSS a bit less so, and JavaScript the least of them, but it's still really lenient compared to many other programming languages. You know, just because you don't need to compile and, you know, stuff works. And now we've got TypeScript is being more strict than JavaScript is, and a lot of people are actually happy about that. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and 
in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. But again, going back to the, my point, the thing with the web is because of its fairly lenient nature, you can build systems which have pretty bad architecture and implementations on the inside, and they still work. I remember a story actually not about the web and about the compiled uh, program. I don't remember which programming language it was built in. So my f- a friend of mine worked as a consultant for some company, and he told me that they were shipping their product in production for several years now, and they could only get it to run as a debug build. Ne- they could never get it to work as a production build. In some of these uh, compiled programming languages, when you're in debug, variables are automatically initialized to zeros, Whereas you're running in production in order to save cycles, it doesn't zero the memory, so it can cause uh, crashes. And there are other aspects as well. This is just one example. So they were shipping a debug program to their customers, not because they wanted to be able to debug in the field, simply because the production system never actually worked. But, you know, they were selling, they were making money. Customers were, I presume, pleased with the software, otherwise they wouldn't be paying for it. And I'm seeing a lot of it on the web. If you effectively open up the dev console in in effectively any SPA that you wonder to, you will see a ton of errors being written to the console and people are fine with it. And, and, you know, so the question is, does this indicate poor craftsmanship? Or maybe it is fine. Maybe if, if, it, if it works, that's good enough. I don't know. What do you think? We say if it fits, it ships. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the USPS, the United States Postal Service, oh, know, a few years oh. ago. They said if it fits, it ships because they were. And and so basically you could deform the box in any way you wanted. If you could somehow get the thing in the box, Hmm. it didn't matter. You buy a prepaid box. If you at all, in any way, shape or form, manage it to get within the confines of the box, it ships. So you're reminding me of. You're reminding me of. I love it. That's a perfect metaphor. Yeah, it is. Uh, I need to remember that one. And it reminds me of this excellent uh, video that I've seen, you know, a number of times on Twitter where uh, there's this uh, presumably a a female engineer looking at somebody playing like fitting this uh, child's game where you have shapes and you need to fit them into holes. You you know what I mean? Like uh, it can be a triangle or a circle or half a circle. And they fit in the square hole. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Everything goes in the square hole. And she literally starts crying at a certain point in time because she just can't cope with the fact that they're sticking everything into the square hole. But everything does fit in the square hole. So, you know, why not? But I think it does. It just it just brings us back to this point that it's about people. And it's about sort of if you care about what it is that you're doing is is probably the strongest indicator 
of whether it'll end up being well made or pro- and there's there's two things here right like you at first you have to care like you have to want to to actually make it good or and, and not just sort of fit it and ship it but then there's there's also the question of of how and what does it mean what is what is good software what is beautiful software which which I think you touched on that. It, it could be very subjective, right? Like we could go in and say, oh, I did the smartest, most elegant thing to make this code sort of look so much better. And the next person will go in and say, what can, can do we curse? Is this the podcast you curse on? What the beep is going on? Is that no? Not even that. The next person will go in and say, what in God, God's name is going on? So I think this whole idea of what is good, good software, what is beautiful software is also very tricky. And we, we touched, we started talking before about this idea of simplicity and what is simplicity in code. And I think even if you were to zoom in on that, it's incredibly difficult to pinpoint because some people will say simplicity is have as little code as possible, right? So let's minify, let's name all our variables letters and let's write, you know, these concise arrow functions and 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 the next person going in, it looks like a minified JavaScript file, right? So so even this idea of simplicity is something that I think is is difficult to sort of reach an, an agreement about. Like what does that mean? I disagree to an extent. I mean, I, I agree to a large extent because there's variance. Uh, but I think that it's the, we know what's bad, so don't do that. That leaves a whole area of things that we don't know if they're bad. But there's, there's a huge chunk that we can just, we can just, you know, cut right down this side and say, okay, we know this is bad, so don't do that. And I, if you look at what has succeeded in the hardware world, it has been the ARM processor the risk processor, reduced instruction set. So the way that Apple devices, such as the M1, have outperformed Intel devices, and this is not new technology. Apple just, you know, put a new spin on it by putting it in something that's desktop class, pro class stuff. But you focus on the fewest number of instructions that are necessary in order to accomplish a task. And this is done at the silicon level. This is done at the uh, I don't know what you would call it above the silicon level, but the logic that's in the circuit. So typically you build a circuit with either either P gates or N gates. I don't remember which one's the more prominent one. But basically, if you only manufacture P gates, then then you can use those in series. You can construct AND or ZOR. You can construct every possible part of logic just by using one, not gate, transistor, just by using one type of transistor and connecting it in different configurations. So from a manufacturing process down at the silicon level, it's better to be really, 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 really extremely good at just producing the one type of transistor rather than for efficiency to use fewer transistors by using the other type of transistor to, you know... So I think I lost you in your analogy a little bit, AJ. <laughs> well, I'm we're, I'm working up. Okay, so that's at the silicon level is that you that basically they, they just make one type of thing instead of two types of things. And you could make, you know, all of it with either. But you, if you use both, you could use fewer, you could have fewer, but the, the manufacturing process is so go up a level. Then, you know, if all you need to do is addition, you don't need multiplication, because you can just add over and over again, and you don't need multiplication. You can just add a certain number of times. That's what multiplication is. So there's all these little efficient things you can do to do better multiplication and and so on and so forth. So I, I think that 
even ARM processors support multiplication. I could be wrong about that. But but there's there's a reduced set of things where if you say, well, if I just take this building block and I reuse the building block, I have a simpler system than if I create a more complex, more quote-unquote optimized system. And so at the end of the day, you'd think, well, if it's not optimized, it would be slower. And But we find out that that's not true because the ARM processor has has proven this. Apple's processors have fewer instructions. They use less heat, which means which means they have to do more work, right? So because there's fewer instructions available, it has to run more instructions to get the same work done. But yet, because the entire process is simpler, the manufacturing is more accurate and the the system is more honed so it can do the instructions faster. So even though it has to do more instructions, it can do them more quickly. So it's fewer instructions. And then anything that is really complex, rather than saying, well, let's try to make more instructions. This is what Intel did. Let's just make more instructions to make more operations faster. What Apple did was say, okay, well, we're going to have a, a decoder chip. I mean, this is what's necessary for phones, right? You have to have your radio chip. You have to Again, have your, AJ, your I think we're going decoder, into, AJ, I apologize for interrupting you, but I think we're going into too much detail about memory, about chip architecture. If I understand correctly, your point is that less is more, that the simpler you make things and the fewer types of operations that you have and use, the better the results that you get. Is that is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. I mean, like in the physical world, this works better. And with mental load, the fewer symbols your brain has to parse, the fewer things you have to keep in working memory, the more quickly you can cycle through the things that you understand. So if you have a limited character set of Say like English has 20 characters. It's not as efficient, but it's a heck of a lot simpler than the Chinese character set that has 20,000 characters. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. But again, if I'm using your your kind of analogy, it seems to me that that's not necessarily always the case. I mean, if you look, for example, at programming languages, you will find that the programming languages that are the most popular are generally not the most minimalist, optimized programming languages they are. Popularity has nothing to do with it. I, I would contend that popularity has everything to do with it because at the end of the day, we are working in the real world and the software systems that we encounter are likely to be constructed using the popular systems, programming languages and frameworks and not using the you know mathematically purest uh, ones. Otherwise, everybody might be coding well, in Haskell or something. I, no, I would hate that. I don't think... But, but that's... Popularity has no correlation to craftsmanship. By definition... Most things are junk, right? Look at the universe. Most of the universe is junk. All that we can see, we have never discovered anything in the universe that isn't space junk, right? Except for our planet. That's the only thing in the whole universe we've yet discovered. So if you look at... And even even our planet... It's not in a great state. So, <laughs> so you, you have the Pareto distribution, right? So whatever is most popular, whatever is most abundant is the chaos. It's the entropy. It's the things that are the least organized and least well-suited. I, I, but here's where I somewhat disagree with you. Because when I, like I said, I go into a lot of, of software that, that is pre-existing and I try to improve it in certain ways. But one of my prime directives, as it were, is to remain consistent with the software. I try, like if a soft, if the software is written, I'll give an, a concrete example. One of the things that I hate about the way that a lot of people are, are writing quote-unquote modern JavaScript is that they, they define functions 
using const and arrow. I'm talking about named functions. They do, let's say they want to create a function called calculate value. They will do const calculate value equals and then an arrow function definition instead of simply using the function keyword. And it, well, and it drives me nuts. I hate it. And we discussed it. We discussed this in the past, so I won't go into why I hate it. Uh, people can listen to our previous episode on things about in JavaScript to avoid, where I explain my position. But my point is this: if I go into some soft, pre-existing software that that is, then I, and I see that it's totally written in in this way, in the way that I dislike, if I add a function, I will use this format, the one that I dislike. I won't use the one that I prefer with function. And the reason that I do it is to avoid the cognitive overload or overhead for the the future person that might be reviewing this code and asking themselves, why is 99% of this software written this way and that 1% written a different way? Maybe there's something special about this 1%. Maybe it needs to do things differently. I need to try to figure it out. No, it does everything the exact same way, and I just don't want to create this cognitive overload for them. So I'm intentionally writing code, which I consider to be less pretty, less readable, just in order to avoid these inconsistencies in the existing code base. But that that doesn't go against what I was saying earlier. I mean, I, I agree you're keeping to a constraint that was pre-existing, but that doesn't make that code more craftsman-like. No, uh, my point was different. My point is that the majority of software developers out there like programming languages that are multi-paradigmatic, like JavaScript, like C++, and they prefer it over more purist languages like a Scheme or a Lisp or whatever. Oh, you're going, you're going, you're going the, you, you went but, the wrong direction yeah, but, there. But, Zig. Rust, Go, yeah, JavaScript original is way JavaScript. more popular than Go, but like it or well, not, JavaScript is so. I mean, the word "popular" there that you have no other more option. software is written in JavaScript than it is being written in Go, and people well, are yes, but that that is okay. So let's take Rust. Rust is the most loved language year over year over year on Stack Overflow. It's the most loved language. It's not the most popular. It's the most loved. Popular is. The constraints, I'm assuming, constraints that require a person to use something make it popular by the literal definition, not that we vote for this because we like it, but that it is in wider use. And being in wider use is not an indicator that more craftsmen prefer this or that this has a specific advantage. A lot of times it's historic. JavaScript is not most popular because people love it. No one loves JavaScript. That's why we have React and TypeScript and all these oh, other languages. I, I, think, I think you're conflating a couple of things. I think people, the, what people dislike that they, cho- you know, they might not be able to express the distinction, but what people dislike that drove them towards React is not so much JavaScript, it's the DOM. And it's a lot of, part of the problem is that a lot of web developers don't actually make the distinction and are not necessarily aware of where the DOM starts, JavaScript ends and the DOM starts and vice versa, but that doesn't change that that fact. I will add one thing before I conclude this discussion and drive us to picks because, you know, we're getting along there with the time, and that's that when I started coding, the field was much smaller 
than it is today because I'm old. And it was mostly populated by people who were really, really into it. There used to be a saying like, you know, how a real programmer, and again, you know, what even what does that even mean? But a real programmer is constantly surprised at how much people are willing to pay them to do something that they would do for free. And to a great extent, that was true back in the day. What I'm seeing these days is that a lot of more people are doing it for a living. It's, it's not what drives, it's not like their, their primary consideration. The primary consideration for choosing programming is not the fact that they necessarily love programming, is that the pay is good. And that's a legitimate thing. When, when I, when in the past, when I've expressed, you know, the first times that I, I encountered it, I kind of expressed a surprise about it to an, even to an extent. And I was told that what I was doing borders on gatekeeping. And you know what? It's kind of true. And these days I'm, I'm much more accepting to the fact that there are a lot of people in software. You know, I try, when I encounter that, I try to instill a joy of programming into them. But I accept the fact that maybe it's not the most important things in their life. They, they have other concerns, and that's fine. But I think that does have implications to what we consider to be uh, the craftsmanship of software. If, if Anyway, that that's opens my the, I mean, you, you've just, you, you can't end <laughs> by opening up a whole new can of worms here. Because if what is craftsmanship, if there is not a, a passion or a drive, how can you have craftsmanship without how can someone who i mean software programming is is it is going to become more prolific there's going to be a lower and lower and lower level you know there's going to be more no code you know so software programming is going to become much more diverse shall we say but if you are working excuse the poor analogy but if you're working at mcdonald's are you a like what the craftsmanship of cooking? Are you if you're clocking in and clocking out of McDonald's? Are you are you a craftsman? Is there really a place for craftsmen there? Versus if you're you know you're looking at you know Ruth Chris Steakhouse and and being a chef there. I mean there's there's a difference in kind between somebody who got a job because they don't see a lot of alternatives. There's a lot of people that enjoy working at McDonald's, but I think the overwhelming majority, at least in stereotype, if nothing else, is that McDonald's is where you work when you're trying to figure things out, right? And so there's a huge gap between the person who does something because, well, it, it gets the bills paid and somebody who's doing something because they're they're developing a proficiency or a skill, as we gave the definition earlier. So tell me more, Dan, how, no, how uh, are we going to read? But we have both, right? Like the point is we have both. Yeah. And I think that's fine. We need. Well, we have both. But where is craftsmanship? Th that craftsmanship exists in the places where you actually want, you have to want to do a good job, right? I think like that is the sort of the, the, the condition to it all. You want to come in, you, you have to make it work. You're going to copy paste from Stack Overflow. You can make it work, right? But if you, if you, craftsmanship is about wanting to do it well, right? That's, I mean, there's no other way. There's no way around that. I would allow for both definitions, doing it well and doing it artistically. I just hope you don't do it artistically in code. I, I would say, I would say this, the, those people who are, there are certain advantages even to those people who are primarily working for the paycheck, as it were. They are less likely to try to do it according to your bad definition of what doing it artistically means. Uh, they will likely want to get the job done and, and be on their way. I think that there's the, the concept of if you instill like the basic understanding, 
and the fundamentals, then people will want to do a good job, even if they're not super into it, just so that they can deliver and move on to the next task and have an easier time of it. So it's it's mostly about educating people how to do it properly. And also, I think that in this day and age, people do want to be able to enjoy their job. We've had uh, the great leaving, or is it called, uh, because people were uh, basically said, I'm not enjoying this job, so I don't want to do it anymore. So I, I do think there's a certain sense that if you can help people find the joy in the way that they're doing and, and doing things, teach them how to do things better, they they will want to do this to those things better rather than sometimes they'll cut corners, but at the end of the day, everybody occasionally cuts corners. You know? I actually feel like anyway, we haven't... That's my take on it. No, anything else you want to add? Everything happened at the same time. It was, it was very well-timed. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like we actually haven't spoken about the like the most important thing which is how like how how do you I, I feel like we've barely touched we've touched on simplicity a little bit I am good to keep going well I I'm you know it's getting a bit late for us but for me it just means that uh, we need to get you on the show again yeah I would love I would actually love to continue that discussion I just saw the link that you sent AJ to to the github page uh, which is actually aptly titled the creeds of software craftsmanship <laughs> and I, th- I think it's a worthwhile discussion because I think a lot of the times, even when you look at the people who want to do a really good job, the how how to do it and what should be guiding you is often difficult to pinpoint. And because it's not, it's it doesn't exist, it's not common enough in the ecosystem, you often don't find yourself in a place where you have like-minded people that can help you along. Well, that is, I, I think, one of the great detriments of JavaScript, but the benefits of languages like Rust and Go and Zig. You may not like the philosophy and you may not choose to use the language, but there is a philosophy and there is leadership and there there is a written description of this is what we believe and why we do it the way we do it. This is why build yet another programming language. There's already so many programming languages. Why build another one? And and the languages, I mean, all of the languages that have creeds are the ones that I would consider to be the ones of languages that are geared towards craftsmen. So you have, what's that really wonky one? Scala. Scala has the Scala rationale, which is one of the more esoteric ones in terms of I'm not I'm not familiar with that one. And and it seems that fewer people are familiar with that one in my experience. But you know, Zen of Python, Go Proverbs, Zen of Zig, Rust doesn't really have one, which is kind of strange. Rust actually doesn't have a written, this is why. Yeah, but I also I also think it's a bit of a chicken and and the egg thing because the people who are going to be using these programming languages are going to be the ones who are more likely to write properly crafted software to begin with. You will find fewer. That's part of the draw. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's part of the draw, but it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've got a lot of people going through. JavaScript boot camps. Like I, the, the statistics that I, I like to give is that the median experience of a JavaScript developer or TypeScript developer these days is three years. So 50% of the developers have less than three years of experience. That's not the situation with Rust. People aren't going through Rust boot camps. You know, they might only have two years of experience in Rust, 
but they probably have way more experience in software development by the time that they get to Rust. I recall an experienced developer saying that when he learned Rust, he wanted to cry because it was so beautiful and finally expressed so many concepts that he was longing for. Uh, You don't hear that about JavaScript. That said, I have to say that I think you can write beautiful code in JavaScript. And I know you can. I've done it. (laughs) Now, where's the sound effect now? (laughs) I I don't know. Yeah, but what, what, and and that finally gets to to Neta's point. And that finally gets to Neta's point. What made that software beautiful? Why do you think it was beautiful software? I mean, you said it with such conviction. It means that you knew, you know, that that software that you wrote is beautiful. What made it beautiful? Being able to, well, it's a little bit difficult because no one writes JavaScript this way. By no one, I mean me and Douglas Crockford and half another person. Dan, to some extent, I think, actually. But being able to find, you know, you, you've got the rock and you're chiseling away to find the uh, the Michael inside of it, right? So is that what it was? No, the David, the David inside of it. And, and so you've got... JavaScript is this huge, giant boulder of just blah. But there, if you just get rid of the crap, beneath is a beautiful, entirely usable language. And and so when I say that I've written beautiful JavaScript, it's JavaScript that you only have to learn about four or five concepts of, of JavaScript and, and you can read all of my code and understand all of it. I don't have classes. I don't use ternaries. There's just... It's just an entire class of things that just aren't there. Only what's there is what is necessary to be there. And that's, that is beautiful JavaScript. JavaScript that's not encumbered and burdened with all of what everyone wants it to be, but is left to the simplicity of what it was and still is underneath. So, you know, I wax poetic yep. in a really terrible No, way. but you see, like, but that that's exactly, like, that brings us back to the definition of art versus science, right? Because there's something about it that is, you can't help but describe it in metaphor. And I don't want to do that. I want to break it down. And it's true. And maybe it's impossible with JavaScript. Maybe it was never created this way. No, but it, 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 was, want... it was created. It was created this way. It just, it just, I mean, I, I say this all the time, but just quickly for your benefit, prototype. What does that mean? It doesn't mean class. It means that you are prototyping something. What we today call polyfills, that's what prototype is. Prototype is the first name for polyfill before they subverted prototype to mean whatever they wanted it to mean, right? But anyway, JavaScript is a small, beautiful language. It has been abused and beaten and had a few couple of golden nuggets given to it over the years, but predominantly it's just... Yeah, but from from the get-go, JavaScript uh, kind of won against the odds because uh, Brendan Eich, when he created uh, JavaScript in those 10 days of glory, he was really constrained in what he was allowed to put in the language, which you might consider to be a great thing because, you know, great success came from him being limited but some of the uh, some of the decisions he, that he did make from the get go were pretty poor ones that were kind of pu- uh, pushed down his throat or alternatively that he was convinced again given the shortness of time he you know made some poor decisions because he's human so for example the whole thing about the implicit type conversions initially did not exist in javascript he added them to javascript because people told them that People expected to have 
implicit type conversions in scripting languages. So he said, ah, okay, if that's what people expect, then I'll add them into JavaScript. So, so yeah, not not all decisions can be good ones. Yeah, and then there, there has to I, be have, trade-offs, but, but, but I, there's a direction. I definitely agree, though, that in many cases, my response to what is beautiful code is, I can't give a definition, but I know it when I see it. And conversely, ugly code. Ugly code is actually easier to define when I see a lot of repetition, when I see code that has uh, side effects, stuff like that, or, or that I can often tell that the person who wrote the code it did a bit, a lot of copy-paste coding and wasn't exactly sure what the code actually does. It just seems to work, so he put it there. I'll give a concrete example. I recently tweeted this. I said, hot take. If you're using inner width or inner height in your JavaScript code, you're probably doing it wrong. And I stand by that statement. And yet you see so much code comparing inner width to to 320, 640, 1024, and then says, well, if it's that, then it's a tablet. And if that's, then it's a, then it's a mobile device and a ton of JavaScript code that works that way. And then they re- hook up to, uh, to the resize events and to the scroll events and whatnot. And it's a hot mess. And you could do that with clean CSS and media queries. And you don't need all this junk. And people do it. And it seems to work. And they just push it out the door. And, and yeah. Anyway, uh, we are really running long on time. And Neta, we probably need to bring you over again because this is an excellent discussion. And I think there's a whole lot more to discuss and, and unpack in this context. Before we finish and move into picks, if people want to contact you to, to see your talk or to converse with you on this topic, how, how, what's the best way to reach you if you want to be rich, that is? Sure. I, I think people can reach me on Twitter. That's probably easiest. My u- username is at underscore bonded underscore. That's B-O-N-D-I-T underscore before and after the name. Um, really cool handle, by the way. I'm, it sounds better in Hebrew, I think. I think it makes less sense in English, but in Hebrew, it's actually a nice play on words. Anyway, I'm there. I'm big on Twitter. I'm on TikTok too. Are you guys on TikTok? I want to like my, I was like, should I do a pick on like TikTok? And I was like, mm, maybe Why not? not? Go for it. But no, I'm not big on, tic- <laughs> on uh, TikTok yet. My experience with TikTok is that it helps people create mental health issues for themselves. <laughs> oh God. Oh, you mean self-diagnose? <laughs> uh, not just self-diagnose. I mean, just self seems to be a community. <laughs> yes, self-inflict. It seems to be a community because uh, people always talk about I mean, I have friends that tell me, oh, I'm so glad I found my community on TikTok. I'm like, you realize those people are faking it, right? Like they're not actually, they don't actually have the whatever, you know, they're, they're acting. They're, what do you call it when you move the steering wheel like this to indicate driving? Pantomiming. They're pantomiming mental illness. They don't actually have these mental illnesses. And they get on there like, oh, I'm so sad today, but this great thing happened because, and then now my mental illness, it's like, just no, this this is fake. It's all fake. It's making mental illness look cool. I don't know about that. That's not my area of expertise. All I can, all I can say is. I I have to say. Yeah, go for it. I have to say as a person as a person with ADHD I actually found found a lot of useful resource and I mean may, maybe maybe people are faking it I don't know how you could like stand, there's so much that goes into making a TikTok video maybe it's like 
you know, I don't know how you could stand to do that. But I did find some things that have been useful to me. So, but I wasn't actually going to do a pick on TikTok. I was just, I just wanted to say I'm one of the cool kids. I'm still young. I use TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Yeah, but yeah, I, I have my now I feel so like, that a bot can't take it. Now, now I feel like you're mocking me. Anyway, let's let's move into picks. <laughs> so AJ, you go first. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right, so First, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with some just show notes here to reiterate. So we talked about the story of Mel. So we're going to have that link in the show notes. And it goes in the square hole. That's right. The square mm. hole. <laughs> we'll have that in the show notes. And then picks. So creedsofcraftsmanship.com. This is the website that I am personally curating as I find the best of the best, either creeds written by software developers, things like 12-factor apps, Zen of Python, et cetera. Those are all up at the top. As I find talks, people, a lot of them are the Google or Microsoft or Yahoo or whatever tech talks. Uh, the, but as I find people that are really exemplifying the concepts of, of software craftsmanship, I put those there. And so some of it's organized up towards the top. And then down as you get down further down towards the bottom, it's kind of like, oh, uh, just stuff. But these these are, I think, the best resources on the internet. And if you have one that you'd like to add, please comment with it. And uh, you know, who knows? I I may I may give it a big fat thumbs up and move it up towards the top. Then I'm also we talked about this, but I I didn't actually say it at the time, and I've picked this before. But uh, Lewis Sullivan, form ever follows function. The engineering comes first, then the art is layered on top. You figure out what function it needs to fill and make sure it fills the function and then you add the flourish and you can engineer that you're going to have this you know flourish in there but you don't want concave buildings that act as magnifying glasses to melt the pavement on the sidewalk for anybody I, i've mentioned this several times before but it's really really important that we can consider art the art is there for a purpose and some art is just there to make you happy, but most art car can be beautiful, but it has to get you from A to B, unless it's a Lamborghini, in which case, you know, you just ride it around twice and then and then resell it to another enthusiast because the engines <laughs> exploded after about 12 miles or something like that. And then uh, a couple of the better apps delivering universal UI patterns as web components. This is a talk. This is on the Creeds of Craftsmanship. It's, it's a talk about Elix. This was from the Microsoft Tech Talks, but it's just a really, I don't remember at what point I was thinking thinking about this while we were talking but it this is this is just a really interesting perspective of of a, the atomic components uh, basically atomic components of that you can use in the browser and how to construct them in a way that they are guaranteed to work so you don't have well sometimes when i click it it works and other times i have to you know rage click it and you know it's just he's he's the, the guy is describing this pattern of how he identified what are the fundamental core components of interaction and how to stack those components of interaction so that you get interactions that actually work, that aren't buggy, a calendar widget that actually works, you know, stuff like that. And then his the, the, his implementation of that principle is called Elix, and uh, that's component.kitchen. And then finally, festivus.dev. Have you all heard of this? Say it again. Festivus.dev. 
Uh, you mentioned it on the no. show before, but uh, so I, I've heard it it's, from you. <laughs> oh, whoops. I don't know what that link was. I just sent, I copied this and it sent a different link. It said, but here is Festivus.dev. It is, it is Seinfeld episodes that have been recaptioned. So there's no audio, but it's just Seinfeld walks in. He says something to George and it's like, hey, I've been thinking about using NPM modules. NPM modules? I know about that. That's how everybody's making the big bucks. Let somebody else write the code. And then uh, Kramer comes in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Import the module and all the security vulnerabilities. I mean, why not just let people have remote access to your machine? It cracks open a, a soda. You know, It's just they're hilarious and they're they're fairly lengthy. I mean, it's not it's not just, you know, one or two seconds. It's a minute two, three minutes long of this dialogue going back and forth about DevOps or programming or web development. And they are just hilarious. They're amazing. Cool. Thank you, AJ. So now for my own picks. So my first pick is going to be the fact that as we're recording this on September 20th, today's actually my wife's and my anniversary. So, so yay for us. And yeah, yay. thank you, Orit, for putting up with me. And you've made me a much better person. And, and I love you. So that would be my, uh, my first pick. My second pick is related to what we've been discussing today. It's a book I read a long time ago. To be honest, I don't even remember the details. So hopefully it's as good as I remember it to be. But it's exactly on topic and it's called Code Complete. It was written by Steve McConnell, and it talks about the craftsmanship of code, about how to write better code. And I, as I said, I recall it being an excellent book that influenced me in positive ways. So I'll, link, I'll pick that as well. My next pick is, I've mentioned it before, but you know what? I'll mention it again. I'm going to be speaking at the Web Directions Summit Conference in December in Sydney, Australia. I'm really excited about that because I've never been to Australia. And it's looking to be an amazing conference. It has like six tracks. Uh, I'm speaking about the React track uh, on the React track, even though I'm not explicitly or exclusively talking about React. I'm actually going to be using uh, performance data collected by Google from real user sessions to compare the performance of the various frameworks out there but there are a lot of great speakers there. Tejas, who we've had on, on the show, uh, Vitali Friedman from Smashing Magazine, and so many more, like I said, six tracks. So there's a ton of content. Obviously, if you're in, in the, that location, I would love to see you there. And if you're not, I think they're also uh, going to have online access to the conference and to the talks. So that would be my second pick, or actually my third pick. Sorry, I got I confused myself. And my final pick is that pick I pick every time, which is the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, it seems that the Ukrainians are actually managing to push the Russians back. But unfortunately, the Russians are retaliating by actually firing missiles at population centers and civilian infrastructure and whatnot, which is causing even more pain and suffering. So, so yeah, as usual, as usual, if there's anything you can do to help, please do. And those would be my, my picks for today. And Neta, now's your turn. Given that you're not going to pick TikTok, is there anything else that you would like to pick for us? Yeah, I actually, yes, I went a bit 
wider. So first off, I want to recommend a site called cssbattle.dev. It's a website that gives you all sorts of different just images and like shapes, whatever that you can make with CSS. And then you can sort of challenge yourself to replicate it. And there's like different levels of stuff you can do. And uh, I just, I don't, again, for my ADHD peeps, sometimes you need to do something sort of in the background of something else. And I think this this is a great way to sort of keep yourself occupied with a challenge, uh, even while you're whatever listening to, to a podcast or whatever. Or I, I didn't want to say this, but like if you're sitting in on a meeting and you just need something to sort of keep that part <laughs> of your brain busy. Been there, um, so that. that's cssbattle.dev. Yes. Okay. And then uh, something else that might... Just might be common knowledge, but I only recently discovered is MIT Open Courseware. So apparently, MIT puts all of their classes, online lectures, exercises, like all of it, and like all any, all of it is just accessible for free online, which I just find to be amazing. And if I if I could tie that back. Uh, briefly to the idea sort of of craftsmanship that we've talked about. I often feel like the influ the, the influence or the ideas that that come to me based on adjacent knowledge that isn't actually computer programming knowledge make me a better craftsperson. So I just think it's really cool that all this knowledge is out there. So it's MIT open courseware. And that's my second pick. And then my third pick is completely non-tech related. Uh, I love fantasy books. And I'm currently reading one called The Priory of the Orange Tree, which is, you know, it has like kingdoms and knights and magic and dragons and everything that makes a really good fantasy book. And I'm enjoying it. So I'm going to cool. We, we need to compare notes on fantasy books sometimes. I, I'm a connoisseur myself. So, okay. Anyway, Neta, thank you very much for coming on our show. This was a wonderful discussion. I actually think there's a lot more to discuss and unpack here. So I would love to have you on again. <laughs> I'll need to, <laughs> to see where that can happen. After the holidays. <laughs> for sure. And anyway, thank you again for coming and thank you all for listening and goodbye. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.